The Athletic. Hello and welcome to Aramco F1 Focus, the podcast that aims to get you thinking about Grand Prix racing that little bit differently. I'm Tim Silvey, the self-proclaimed team principal of this podcast, if you will. And as always, I'm joined by Performance Director Alex Brundle and Head of Stats, Sean Virtual Statman Kelly. Alex, how's it going? Going very well, straight off the back of the Goodwood Revival. So I'm well historic, smelling of oil and grease. And uh, looking forward to another set of uh, Formula One races to come. Excellent. And Sean, what about you? Well, the European season is in the rearview mirror. And you know what that means? Massive jet lag between now and the end of the year. Uh, Have you found a cure for your jet lag yet, Sean? Uh, Alex has been giving me some secret, like off mic tips, which I'm going to be implementing. We may we may talk about it more in a future episode. We'll see. We can share those on socials. Good stuff, Jets. Lovely to be talking F1 with you both as always. Let's get going, shall we? This week, we're going to kick off with Sean's stat focus and a subject matter that seems to get a lot of fans rather hot under the collar. It's whether Max Verstappen's dominance is killing Formula One. Now, there's no doubt, Sean, that Max is destroying the opposition. But is it killing our sport? Cue the rant. Yes. Yes, I'm starting my segment with a rant this week. So Max Verstappen recently broke the all-time record for consecutive championship race wins when he scored his 10th win in a row at the Italian Grand Prix, with Red Bull Racing becoming the first team to score 15 consecutive victories. Now, many people have slid into my Twitter mentions to tell me that this dominance is killing the sport and that something needs to be done to rein in Red Bull's overwhelming success of late. But killing the sport? What is this particular streak killing the sport? I mean, after all, Verstappen only recently surpassed the previous record streak. And that record, depending on how you interpreted it, had been set on two previous occasions. Now, when Alberto Ascari won nine consecutive championship Grand Prix in 1952 and 53, the third and fourth years of the existence of what was then called the fledgling World Championship of Drivers, was there a groundswell of fans yelling that it was boring and that this newfangled World Championship malarkey was far more predictable than the European Championship that had been the headline act of the 1930s? When Jim Clark scored the maximum possible score under the rules of the time, driving a Lotus in 1963, and then followed that by doing it again in 1965, a year in which he was so dominant that he had the leeway to skip the Monaco Grand Prix altogether and go and win the Indy 500 instead. Were his and Colin Chapman's achievements lauded, or was it considered to be the death of the sport? Or how about in 1978, when Chapman created a chassis, the Lotus 79, so good at generating ground effect that the only way it could be beaten on pure pace was when Gordon Murray literally attached a fan to the Brabham to suck all the air out from underneath it, a car that was withdrawn after one race before it could be banned outright. How about 1988, when most teams prepared for the forthcoming ban on turbocharged engines by simply updating their existing cars, while McLaren built a totally new chassis that would be legal for one year only, mated it with the world-beating Honda engine, and won 15 out of 16 races, at one stage qualifying 3.3 seconds quicker than anybody else. Did the knowledge that only two drivers had a chance of winning alienate the viewers? Or maybe 1992, when Nigel Mansell, won the first five races of the season in a Williams FW14B, so superior to its rivals that Nigel Mansell qualified 2.7 seconds quicker than Ian Senna and 3.1 seconds quicker than Michael Schumacher at the British Grand Prix. Of course, Schumacher would have 
his own era of dominance, lest we forget when he was winning 11 races for Ferrari in 2002 and wrapped up the title on July the 21st of that year. Was Schumi killing the sport then? Well, I certainly hope not, because he won even more races in 2004, taking 13 wins on his way to his fifth consecutive world title for Ferrari. Furthering the German theme, Sebastian Vettel would win 13 races with Red Bull in 2013, not uncoincidentally taking nine consecutive race victories along the way, and winning the title by the largest ever margin at the time, 155 points. And last but not least, there's Lewis Hamilton, of course, who became the first driver to 100 wins and 100 pole positions, has won at least 10 Grand Prix in six different seasons, and won the 2020 championship by 124 points, despite not even competing in all of the races. It's important to note that every driver and car I've mentioned, no matter how boring any contemporaneous observer may have found them at the time, are now well and truly placed among the greatest legends of the sport, a place where we will undoubtedly find Max Verstappen years from now. And while I agree it would be better to have more winners, those of us old enough to have witnessed these previous eras now boast that we saw some of the greatest competitors in history at the height of their powers. All very valid points, Sean, all taken on board. But could we point to the changing media landscape and the way content's consumed and blame that on the criticism being levied at the sport? By that, I mean, people have less attention span. They want excitement. Viewers now more than ever want to be entertained or they move on to some other sport or thrilling thing that they can find on the internet or their, their live stream. Could it be now that we're less tolerant to this sort of dominance? Absolutely. I think that's one of the most fundamental principles is that it's not necessarily the sport that has changed. It is ourselves that have changed. Back in the 80s and 90s, for instance, particularly in the 80s, I mean, I can remember watching Grand Prix where nothing would happen, basically. After the start of the race, you, you know, there would be no pit stops, there were no fuel, refueling stops and whatnot. And we'd just see the same guys disappear off uh, into the distance. And we'd, we'd sit there in anticipation that maybe somebody will make a move, maybe something interesting will take place and whatnot. These days, we're, more, we're, we're such a now generation. We need instant gratification. If we get bored for more than 10 seconds, what do we do? We get our phones out, we start checking social media, we text people and so on. Of course, that didn't exist back in the day. Um, and I think that that has had a large bearing on people's willingness to sit through uh, such a, a dominant phase in Grand Prix history. It's interesting, though, and I think I have a secondary explanation for the reason uh, for why we're not prepared to tolerate such dominance, because, you know, when you look at those historical concepts uh, and you look at, for example, a six-wheeled Tyrrell or a fan car or something like that, those uh, through the through the years, the years of Formula One, those dominant cars that have come out, the reason why they're dominant has been evident to the viewer so often. You know, it's been clear that the, the car has something they can the viewer can connect in, get excited about it and understand it. With this latest Red Bull, as well as being slightly in a slightly tribal era of Formula One as well, uh, with everything that goes on, uh, on, on the, in the social media landscape of the sport, I really think that the viewer sits there and they can't, Beyond, you know, some discussion around very powerful DRS systems and the uh, and the associated queries, the viewer can't really sit there and go, oh, they've come up with a excellent X or Y, and that is why they're winning races. And I think it's a confusion and a misunderstanding and a lack of ability to explain 
that dominant that really makes the viewer less tolerant of it? Well, that certainly parlays into the examples I gave. I mean, think Jim Clark winning in 1963 with the Lotus 25, the first proper monocoque chassis in, in Formula One, the Lotus 79, the, 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 the first truly proper ground effect car, certainly the one that harnessed it uh, and really made everybody realize that, okay, this is actually the future now. In 88, like you mentioned, or like I mentioned, uh, the McLaren Honda was a one season wonder while everybody else was just marking time for the normally aspirated era. And then there's the FW14B, which of course had the active suspension and the traction control and, and, and so on. So yeah, there, are, there is, that is a, a good example that it is more difficult to explain away the advantages of Red Bull. And after, after all, the Red, Bull, the Red Bull is actually not dominant in qualifying. We've had very, very close qualifying sessions this year. There have been a couple of times when Verstappen has been dominant. But most of the time when he's been on pole, it's not been by very much. And usually his biggest um, competitor is from another team. So at least in qualifying, they don't, they don't have as much dominance. But in the race, it's a different story. People were prepared to spend a lot of time watching man go to the moon, for example, because uh, that um, felt like breaking ground. And I think that in all of those examples, we felt like we were breaking ground with this era of dominance. Uh, and indeed, I think potentially Mercedes era of dominance before it, we do it doesn't feel like they're breaking ground, does it? It just feels like they're doing the best job with the regulation set, which hurts the viewer. Yes, slightly. Um, but obviously there came a point, uh, making, there came that crossover point, and I'd probably argue that the, the crossover point was Imola 1994, when the relentless pursuit of pace had to be reined in because there was this realization that, well, quite apart from the fact this is dangerous, no matter how, no matter how safe we make it, it's still a dangerous sport. Um, but if they keep going quicker and quicker, the, the racetracks are not going to be able to contain these cars. So from then on, Formula One cars were a bit more on a leash uh, and became a little bit more uh, sanitized, shall we say. Um, now, that's whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing um, is in the eye of the beholder. Everybody would have a different opinion on it. Um, but it is true that, for instance, I mean, the, the, the cars up until the end of 2021 were the fastest cars we've ever had in Formula One. But then conversely, uh, people would complain that they're very, very um, you know, onerous and overweight and big and, and so on. Um, so th th there is also a complaint about the cars as well, that maybe the cars don't look as nimble as they did I mean, you remember when Fernando Alonso ran his 05 car at Abu Dhabi a couple of years ago, everybody stopped to watch in the paddock. And the, the first thing we all thought was, God, is that how nimble those cars looked back then? It wasn't that long ago we were using those cars and they look so much more agile than today, even though today's car was, you know, five or six seconds a lap faster. The, the cars are certainly not as nimble, but one thing that they are is incredibly reliable. They just don't seem to go wrong. Presumably, that contributes a lot to Max's dominance, but does it diminish it at all? I don't think it diminishes it necessarily. And you are right that reliability has taken a quantum leap forwards uh, in the hybrid era. Um, and Red Bull themselves, Red Bull are actually, the, the uh, at the time of the recording, uh, as I speak right now, have gone further into the season uh, without having any retirements. Uh, than any other team on the grid. But we've had 15 retirement-free races in history, and 11 of them have come in the hybrid era. So we, we are in an era of reliability that bears no resemblance to what came before it. There was only four retirement-free races uh, up until 2014. And one of those was Indianapolis 2005, where we only had six cars. So um, this season 
It's been actually so reliable. We've had two races this season where we've had no yellow flag and no retirement. That was Miami and in Spain. I mean, the idea that we'd have an entire race without a single yellow flag, without a single retirement, would, would you know, you would have laughed at me 10 years ago. So um, that does, I do agree that that does play into it because there isn't that anticipation, will the car hold together? I think we all watch Grand Prix these days and are very, very surprised when we see a car suffer a mechanical failure because it's just it just doesn't happen. I mean, I can recall um, races in the past where we'd have maybe eight or nine finishes in the, in the 80s and 90s. Now, you know, if you get less than 18, it's, it's almost newsworthy. You know, it's, it is... That, that, does, that does strip down some of the anticipation of wondering what might happen next. I do agree. What about the, the cost cap, Sean? Does that prevent other teams rushing out a B-spec car to try and close that gap a little bit? Well, I had a, I, I had a, a similarly ranty conversation with Peter Windsor uh, back in Australia about this. He was commiserating over the drawbacks of the cost cap. And he said to me, you know, the problem is, is these days is, okay, yeah, Red Bull have got the best car in race trim. But nowadays, because of the constrictions of the cost cap, Mercedes can't go away and design a B-spec car in secret and wheel it out at Barcelona on Thursday morning to the surprise of everybody. And suddenly they found half a second, three quarters of a second that no one was expecting them to have. That, those days are gone because they, can't, they cannot operate within the cost cap and still do that. Um, so that, again, that's, that's a valid argument. I'd, I'd like to hear Alex's opinion on this as he's more from the, uh, the driver team side of things than from the statistics side of things. But it is fair to say certainly from my side, Alex, jump in when you're ready, that it, the advantage is a little bit more baked in the cake than, than it seems to have been in the past, with, Mac, with McLaren's leap forward in mid-season notwithstanding. I mean, I'd have H-pattern V12s with single-plane front and rear wings. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that is, that's, uh, uh, that's about where I stand on it. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think the cost cap is, is, is kind of a... It's really bringing the you know conceptually you've got to stop somewhere, haven't you? Otherwise you're just gonna you're just gonna chase teams out of Formula One. The counter argument is well we've got a queue of teams wanting to come into Formula One. Um, I, I've spoken about it before on this podcast, and I'll speak about it again. I, I do think it. I, I do agree with you that some of the uh, inherent disadvantages the smaller teams have had are somewhat baked in by the cost cap in the in the inability to upgrade facilities at the factory for example or upgrade you know competencies or capacities that they didn't have before the cost cap came in and it was almost like a a race to spend wasn't it before that cost cap came in uh, to try and put yourself in the position because obviously a racing budget is more complex than just sitting there with your 100 and something ever increasing uh, million dollars uh, and going, how are we going to spend it this year? Because you've already spent money on processes and things and uh, wind tunnels and capacities beforehand. So I do agree with you that that somewhat sets the hierarchy of the field. That being said, though, you know, coming back to the topic, everyone but if you took Max Verstappen out of this championship, it would be a world-class spectacle of motor racing. You know, I'm not saying it's not, <laughs> by the way, but but uh, you get my point. This would be 
one of the classic championships in in Formula One history if Max Verstappen was not in that Red Bull. I think that says something. Yeah, and also I want to add to that. I mean, I mentioned McLaren made a mid-season jump in performance. Aston Martin, of course, made a big leap in the off-season, which uh, Otmar Safnauer, who was there when um, Lawrence Stroll bought the team, he said, you know, it always takes five years to, to, to turn the ship round, as it were, and get it to the point where you can do that. Um, and then you've got the Williams team, where, you know, James Vowles has come in. Um, at Monza, Alex Albon, I'm going to get a little bit geeky with my numbers here, but stick with me. Um, Alex Albon was 0.58 of a percent away from pole position. Now, that number is significant because that's the closest that Williams has been to pole position. Not in terms of position on the grid, but in terms of the ultimate lap of the weekend. That's the closest that Williams has been to the ultimate lap of the weekend for uh, eight years. So um, for Williams to go from the back of the so bottom of the Constructors' Championship to being actually quite competitive um, does show that um, it is possible to, to, to make some moves here. Although Red Bull are kind of making everybody look silly in race trim. This is the problem we've got, though, uh, you know, because it's porridge, not a pick and mix, isn't it? Because you've got to, <laughs> if, you, if you're interested in that, you know, you can go through the speed trap things in Monza and you can see that the Williams was absolutely monstrous. They bought a low drag car. You can go and search the underbody pictures from earlier on that came out uh, earlier on in the year and go, oh, that's an interesting thing. Look at that lower budget team who've done that thing. And now they're strong there. And I know that. And I'm going to go and talk to my mates about that who are also interested in Formula One. And we can have a pint and have a chat about that. But that is literally, what, 6% of the audience that are going to that are gonna engage with the sport in that way in a media landscape, as we discussed at the top of the pod, where people rather like being hit over the head with things. You know, in terms of conceptually. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah. Do we have to make it more obvious? And how are we going to do that is is the, the, the issue. And again, it falls down to explaining the sport more concisely, more intelligently. So what I'm kind of saying, unfortunately, is it's our fault, isn't it? Yep. We are useless. <laughs> yeah. Oh, get me coat. Yeah, I'm going to fire myself. <laughs> You're fired. Sean, um, I don't know whether you've spent much time with Max Verstappen or I've got to know his private persona, not necessarily the one that we see on our TV screens, but he strikes me as somebody who would actually rather enjoy being raced every now and again rather than just turning up and finishing first by a country mile. Do you think he's enjoying this era of dominance? I think it's one of those instances, isn't it, when in life where you think, this is all going so well, and it's a little bit easy for me. I don't want to say that out loud because I don't want to jinx it. But it was kind of fun fighting wheel to wheel. It, it, the, as long as I was winning, as long you know, as long as he's winning the race, um, fighting wheel to wheel would be good fun. I reckon. I reckon he had a good time fighting with Carlos Sainz in Monzo. When I was watching that battle. I, I likened it actually to um, a car that I previously mentioned, that Williams FW14B in 92. Whenever Senna would get ahead of Mansell at any point in a Grand Prix, watching Sainz defend from Verstappen was very similar to watching Senna try to keep Mansell behind him in that car. And um, there you go. There's one for the kids there, folks, from 30 years ago. If, you've, if, you, if, if you're not old enough to have seen Senna have to keep a much better car behind him, it was very like what Sainz was doing 
to Verstappen. I reckon there's, there's part of Max that actually thought, I'm going to get this guy. It's only a matter of time. But I am having quite a bit of fun just for once. What do you think, Alex? Oh, definitely so. It's my favourite thing to watch great race drivers under fire like that. That's that's actually, you know, as, a, as an observer, as a commentator, um, not as a driver. I absolutely hate it as a driver. Uh, but but to, to watch a driver under fire from a clearly better car because they extract something that that they do at no other time uh, kind of like when you you kind of like you run faster if a lion was chasing you somehow i bet if he got a <laughs> clock on you it'd be pretty impressive how fast you could actually run you know what i mean it, it's the, it's the same it's the same energy um and so uh that was that was a, a brilliant piece of driving there was a there's a radio message that came out of max where he kind of he kind of went oh that was a bit naughty and it was kind of, it, it, it was it was a bit like um you know it was a bit like um a kind of middle-aged middle-aged person who'd been a who'd been a teetotal for 45 you know for 30 years or something going oh you'll never guess what happened you know had a schnapps <laughs> you know <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of like oh we never guess what happened I had a glass of a glass of wine last night <laughs> it was dangerous i had to pass someone <laughs> to win a grand prix <laughs> sean we'll see some regulation changes coming in 2026 um if max stays at red bull and the team continues to get to grips with the current regs the gap in the lead up to 2026 is, is surely going to close or do you see max just continuing this dominance um, well, it, the big unknown about the cost cap, of course, is that we don't know what the long-term implication is. We're only in, it's, it's still a new concept, really. We need sort of 10 years of it to really get a, a trend, what, what exactly we would expect. If, in theory, Red Bull should have less development time than everybody else. But in theory, they should have had that this year. And look what's happened. Um, normally, we would see a regression you know, everybody sort of regresses to the mean in terms of uh, the, the, the competitive order. But as Alex mentioned, it is actually a very close championship, except for Red Bull's race pace in qualifying and all the other cars on the grid, very, very close. So um, it's, it's, it's a fragile dominance. It, it's not, uh, you know, I mentioned you know, the Williams in 92 qualifying three seconds quicker than Schumacher, which is just ludicrous. Like no, no one on earth is three seconds a lot quicker than Michael Schumacher in that car. Um, so it, it, it doesn't take a lot to catch them. Um, but where's it coming from? That's the thing. It, it, normally, we would see the cars get closer and closer. And normally, when we get a generational shift in the regulations is when the order gets shook up. Of course, Red Bull were previously dominant in the V8 era. It was when we moved to the turbo hybrid era in 2014 that that came to a shuddering end and was suddenly usurped by what you might call the Mercedes era. So in theory, yes, it should get closer. Um, but Adrian Newey has a habit of going against the established theory uh, as he has once again this year, as he did with the FW14B 30 years ago. Good stuff, Sean. Well, it's clear that dominance in sport can be a double-edged sword for many fans, something that can be celebrated and appreciated, but not always enjoyed. Whatever your opinion, it's clear that Max Verstappen and Red Bull have done a phenomenal job and are operating at an exceptional level. So hats off to them. And remember, if you have a question or comment related to anything Sean's talked about on the show, you can drop us a line on social media using the hashtag AramcoF1Focus. Mm -hmm. 
Right, it's time to turn our attention to the nuts and bolts of performance with Mr. Alex Brundle. Alex, let them race. It's a phrase that comes up time and time again in motor racing, but what does it mean to you and why do you want to talk about it? You're diving into a classic motor racing phrase this week. So I'm talking here about the two Ferraris in the Monza uh, Italian Grand Prix. Uh, And I felt after the Grand Prix distance that under fire from Sergio Perez, both Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc uh, may have had a better opportunity to keep Perez behind if they didn't race each other so hard. I, I said so on social media and I was immediately poo-pooed by the, uh, by the social media um, community at large who considered them racing to be the literal wheel-to-wheel stuff that they did uh, after Perez had made his way through. But it's bigger than that, isn't it? Because as soon as you start to focus on your teammate not want to give away strategically to your teammate, pit early perhaps to undercut your teammate, in reality, you're already racing. And when you look at the way that that Grand Prix played out in terms of the gap to the leader, you can actually connect the time that they lost both strategically and wheel to wheel to the time that they both ended up behind Sergio Perez at the end of the Grand Prix. And while I'm not saying it would have put them ahead of the Red Bull, might have given them an opportunity to take those points away. So I just wanted to open the door of when it's okay to race and when it's not okay to race between teammates as an interesting performance focus. First, Alex, it's the pinnacle of racing. There's a lot on the line, much at stake. Yeah. Is it foolhardy of teams to allow the drivers to race, to let them just go for it? Does that even happen anymore with no shackles attached? Well, you're looking at a weighing scale, aren't you? On on the one hand, you've got the respect of the audience, which is a huge part of modern Formula One. Uh, you've got the, the, the respect of the drivers, because if they're endlessly controlled, then the drivers uh, will revolt eventually especially if you're controlling them unnecessarily with nothing on the line um and then you've got you know pure the fact that you know you don't head in to a formula one grand prix you're not you're not there unless you are a racer at heart that's what that's what they're there to do and so there's a sort of almost emotionality to to that discussion on the flip side you have all of the commercial concerns of uh, victory in the Constructors' Championship or even improvement through the Constructors' Championship and everything that that entails. Uh, the damage to the cars, potentially, which becomes even more important with um, with the cost cap in place because, of course, those damaged parts um, are, are going to come out of the cost cap. Think of McLaren's uh, contacting down in turn one um, in the middle of the Monza uh, Grand Prix. That could have been an incredibly expensive moment uh, between Oscar Piastri and Lando Norris for the team. Um, so uh, the, the, there are these sort of counterbalancing factors and it really is the job of those team personnel to firstly provide the team principles with all of the information. And that really is why those team principles are there. You see them sitting there at the back of the garage, like Toto Wolf does. They don't, they're not engaging in 
the engine settings. They're not engaging in the setup. They're not necessarily engaging that much in, you know, the nuts and bolts, the tyre pressures. What they're there for is the big decision. We will, we won't. Tell Lewis to, tell George to. Um, that kind of thing. And those big decisions fall into the judgment call of those key individuals. Uh, I would say in the world of uh, modern Formula One, all factors trend towards teammates racing less. What interests, you know, from a from a pure, from the standpoint of the regulation set as they are with the, the cost cap, the number of events, and the the strain on the teams if there's damage, the the collaboration between the drivers, the necessity for a tow, DRS availability and all of the options that teams and drivers have to utilise it for better performance. The regulation set turns towards drivers racing less. But the reality trends towards drivers racing more, which really interests me because that shows you it's it's the drive to survive for me. That's the drive to survive effect on track. That shows you that the teams recognise that the audience and the viewer and the respect for their racing team as a racing team is worth so much tangibly in the era of Formula One we're now in. Now it's it's a balancing act for the team, isn't it? If they have a couple of drivers who are relatively evenly matched, they need to make sure that they're both happy that the. The drivers want to race. They want to outshine their teammate. How does one strike a balance between giving the drivers some rope to play with, with them both hanging themselves or one of them getting the hump? Well, we've seen this go horribly wrong so many times. Um, Vettel versus Weber um, connecting Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton down to turn three in Barcelona back in the day. It becomes all the more difficult when there is a... Uh, something on the line. The, the bubbling situation, I think, at the moment, actually, is between Oscar Piastri and Lando Norris um, at, down at McLaren because Lando has been really the incumbent in that team over so many years, really grew up there. And Oscar is doing a fantastic job in the car and really beginning to challenge him um, with his ability behind the wheel. And happy-go-lucky Lando has really has really changed in terms of the way his radio messages are being delivered and in terms of pushing the hierarchy uh, within the team, which really interests me. They've been wheel-to-wheel -wheel a couple of times. There have been a few connections between them, and all is good at the moment, but Zach Brown uh, down at McLaren is going to have to wade in, if he's not already, wade in, intervene, and cool that down a little bit, I believe, at a certain, uh, at a certain stage through the year. Um it's it's hard. What I've always seen throughout my career is teams try to manage the drivers by offering them the opportunity to race or offering them uh, the the freedom when there's nothing at stake or when there's less at stake um, so that they can play the team game when there's more at stake. So a, a team will offer perhaps the drivers the opportunity to race over the final point for 10th, you know, when the when the, the car is not necessarily as strong as it might be. So the team can then pull rank 
when the race is over the final podium position, when the uh, when the car is stronger. That means that the team principal or the team personnel can always refer back to the day that they allowed the drivers free reign when if there's any question about later. The issue with that is the drivers are not silly. They they know they know they know that game is being played. And that's where you get tension. That's where you get politics within a racing team when uh, when drivers are being held back on those big days, on those big performances, and asked to play the team game. If I might add, also we've got a um, a sporting difference to Formula One in, in yesteryear, and that is that points are awarded down to tenth place now. It used to be that points were awarded down to sixth place. So you now have more opportunities to score points. And that means you've got more opportunities to lose points. So therefore, you know, if you in back in the day, if you had two team, two uh, team cars squabbling over seventh place, didn't make that big of a difference because you're both going to score zero. Now you're looking at, you know, sixth and seventh is 10, what, ten, that's 14 points. Seventh and eighth is 10 points. Uh, you know, if these t- they take each other out, you lose 10 points. And bearing in mind what we said earlier in the show about how reliability is bulletproof these days, you know that your big rivals are probably going to get both their cars to the finish as well. So that also factors into uh, the big decision about whether or not to let them race. Yeah, absolutely the case. I mean, if you throw points away in a in a Grand Prix, your rival's picking them up, aren't they? Uh, exa- exactly as you say, because drivers are generally keeping it on the road. The road has become wider with the amount of runoff on the circuits as well. So, you know, over in yesteryear around Monza, you'd see, you know, five or six cars in the gravel at some point, wouldn't you as well? Or, or having, or having issues around Spa, you'd see, you'd see cars off in the wall. Uh, now the cars recover, they stay in the race, which is good for the viewer. Uh, but it's, uh, it means that you do, you do spill points all over the place. If you do have a bad race, I think we're also seeing, you know, and, and the end, at the end of the day, the calculations are done. Racing teams are business entities, we're also seeing with the monetization of eyeballs becoming ever higher that in fact the interesting crossover between the monetization of eyeballs becoming as important as the monetization of performance for 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 the teams because if you go and put your two ferraris on camera as they were for you know 80% of the final you know 10, 20, 15 laps of, uh, of, of the Italian Grand Prix, then, you know, it's something that you can quantify at the end of the year. If they do crash into each other, you lose one, they have a bump, and you lose one position in the Constructors' Championship, it's going to really hurt, but you still have the eyeballs, and, uh, and it's still at the Italian Grand Prix. Uh, Alex, are you clandestinely suggesting that Formula One teams have... Stop being Formula One teams have started being social media influencers in their own right. No, I, I am not. No, I'm not. Not a, not at all. But I do think that I do think that it's it's you know as we've discussed throughout this podcast, really starting to affect the sport, isn't it? It's really starting to affect the sport. The way you know teams are viewed, the way that they instantly react as well online to rectify. I'm thinking, for example, of um, the broken trophy at the end of <laughs> which uh, one. Uh, 
at, at the end of the Hungarian Grand Prix. I'm thinking, for example, of the clash between Oscar Piastri and Lewis Hamilton in the Italian Grand Prix. It, it, the, the audience at large are percolating through however much they would decline to comment, however much they would, um, you know, say they go racing and they, you know, they go racing and they don't care what anyone says. The audience at large are percolating through to the way that race teams are being operated. And that, for me, as a racing driver, is incredibly interesting to watch. And uh, I wouldn't for a second suggest that you know, the Italian crowd and the Italian Grand Prix affected the way that the Ferrari strategically operated their race. But uh, yeah, it's it's certainly a factor. That would never happen at Monza. You must be joking. <laughs> and if the drivers defy team orders, Alex, and race regardless of the instruction not to, how does that really go down behind closed doors? You're a driver, you'll see what happens in the paddock. Could it really have some fairly wide-ranging implications? I'm thinking with team principals who get pissed off, team engineers who have to keep up the relationship with their driver, maybe even sponsors who don't like that maverick attitude. Multi-21, Seb. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it's it's a big deal. I mean, I, I think you've always seen the... Uh, Max Verstappen's done it a couple of times, uh, hasn't he, throughout his career? Just gone, nope, not letting back through, actually. Um, you've always seen... I'm going to call them the, the great and intense minds do this. It's a negotiation point between the teams, both between the teams and the drivers, both contractual and real. Um, yeah, so many of the drivers will have a positioning within the team, yeah, actually physically stated in their contract. And at that point, the team can ask, but they can't tell um, whether you know the, the driver to take actions. So that's the bit that's clear and sort of in the in the black and white if you like in the in the written word um the, the bit that's in the gray is let's say you are a, a max verstappen or perhaps a fernando alonso at aston martin uh maybe a, maybe a, maybe a bad example actually fernando alonso aston martin because of everything that goes on with lance stroll and, and so on but, but let's say you're an alex albon at williams there's always a balance in the driver's mind as to how much the team need you and to how much you need the team. Um, if you're the driver generating the results, moving things forward, and, and the team are reliant on you to, to, to undertake that, then it is actually extremely hard for the team to threaten you because threaten you with anything because what are they going to threaten you with you know we're going to fire you and therefore reduce the our opportunity to gain results we're going to uh, replace you with who a rookie who hasn't done any grand prix one of the other 20 one of the other 19 currently unavailable formula one drivers there are a lot of race car drivers in the wings always there are a lot of talented race car drivers in the wings but because of the nature of Formula One, the super license, the number of drivers who are actually, you know, have Grand Prix experience, there are not a lot of proven Formula One drivers available at any one time. And that's that moment where I think you see someone like a Sebastian Vettel uh, in his heyday at Red Bull go, no, not letting him back through. 
because what are they going to do about it? Um, so I think it's a, it's, it's a really interesting interplay in a moment that occurs in the driver's mind. You've just reminded me of a great team orders story from back in 1981. Like, oh, okay, granddad. But um, yeah, back in 1981. So Alan Jones was the reigning world champion at Williams and Carlos Reutemann was his teammate. At Brazil that year, Carlos Reutemann was leading Alan Jones. The Williams team were giving him the pit signal, move over, let Alan Jones through. And Carlos Reutemann refused to do it and won the race. And uh, Alan Jones was so annoyed that he didn't show up on the podium afterwards. And there was always a needle between those two drivers. And I think when, uh, when Reutemann finally packed in uh, driving, I think, uh, I think there was a situation where he, he might have met Carlos Reutemann or, or Frank Williams suggested, you know, you bury the hatchet with him. To which Alan Jones famously responded, oh yeah, I'll bury the hatchet right in his back, mate. <laughs> wow. Alex, you mentioned uh, Alex Albon there, but th- I guess this makes life very difficult if you're the perceived second driver. So, you know, Logan Sargent, he, he needs to prove himself to keep his F1 seat alive, to keep his F1 dream alive. And if he's suddenly racing wheel for wheel against Alex and he's told, you know, don't race, this is, this is not the time, but he needs to prove himself. He's kind of in a no-win situation if he's, you know, comparing himself up against his teammate, isn't he? Is sort of, if you're performing well, you're the number one driver you're sitting pretty. Number two, it's suddenly becoming even harder because of that reason. And you've got to remember as well that that team hierarchy extends beyond just the on track, you're on different strategies, Fernando is faster than you stuff. Um, it, it, It goes to who's punching a hole in the air in qualifying, who's giving who a toe, who's getting the new front wing first. Who uh, and and so on and so forth, and all of those resources. And you're absolutely right. And, and you see it so much in Formula One. The same driver, Alex Albon, had the same thing in the different direction at, uh, at, at Red Bull. So knows exactly what his teammate currently is going through. You're on a travelator. It's like the end of Gladiators and you're running uphill with the road moving backwards. <laughs> um, you know, and that's that's the difficult thing. Any performance you do give always has the caveat of, yes, but how much was I actually losing to all of those negative strategic calls? Which is why, you know, it's so important and we've we've seen you know the other Formula Two rookie coming through, Oscar Piastri, do it excellently this year. You've got to hit the ground running because it's sink or swim, and you've got to paddle from the first Grand Prix. Otherwise, you start getting put to the back. You start getting you start losing out because these teams need performance now all the time. Um, so uh, it, it's it's certainly a factor. And, um, you know, throughout the year, you see the drivers struggling. When they go into the media pen, you can see in their eyes that they know they've not got the opportunity. The old uh, the old Red Bull second car uh, media answer with the eyes glazed over, all of the things they can't say, uh, uh, you know, not not coming out of not coming out of their mouth. But. It only takes one performance is the saving grace. You know, it only takes one Grand Prix victory and all of a sudden or, or, or point score if you're in the midfield and all of a sudden you're back up there on parity. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. And, and for those under 30 years old, go onto YouTube and, and search uh, Gladiators Travelator and, uh, and you'll get some context. 
<laughs> Bring back the travel later. Bring back gladiators. Yeah. Don't, don't get me started on Buddy's star prize. <laughs> um, Alex, uh, you, you, you've experienced receiving the message, I'm sure. Just don't race your teammate, Alex. Don't do it. A drop back. How did it make you feel behind the wheel? Or perhaps you've received the, Alex, pass your teammate. You're faster and, and he's not allowed to race you. How, how did that make you feel behind the wheel? I don't know. I think I had a radio failure that day. (laughs) I've had I've uh, I've had teammates. I've had radio failures myself occasionally. Uh, I've had teammates who've pulled the radio plug out uh, in the final uh, in the final laps of races um, and said, yeah, disconnected, et cetera, et cetera. The sports car world is rough for this stuff. You know, everything sits a little bit more um, in the grey. it's, I have done it, uh, doesn't feel good. And, you know, as a driver, you always, there's this, you lose time doing it, but you always feel the necessity inside to kind of make it obvious. And I don't know why that, and I don't know why that is, because you lose more time doing it that way. But the big off the racing line, you know, the big clear lift, um, just to just to make it clear that you've not been passed, um, uh, and and that your that your teammate is going through because you've let them through. Um, th- there are there are things uh, in the tighter formulae. There's a real way to do it as well because so often your teammate you know is being followed in by one of your competitors as well. So there's a real technique actually to only letting your teammate through and then no and then nobody else, which is one of the hardest things to do. Uh, in motorsport we we don't practice conceding positions much uh you you'll find it difficult to believe so uh actually drivers are pretty out of practice with it but um i've been lucky enough not to receive that message too many times and uh yeah i I hope i never i hope i never uh, receive it again otherwise my radio will become more unreliable Lovely stuff. Thanks, Alex. I think we'll leave it there for now. Uh, the question of how hard teammates should race each other is one that will likely be debated for as long as Formula One exists. Right, it's now time for our Aramco focus segment, which this week returns to the subject of F1 in schools. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know we've already featured Chair of Judges Gary Anderson in this segment. Well, this week we've got the big boss, Andrew Denford founder and chairman of F1 in Schools, who's here to tell us about the Aramco F1 in Schools World Finals, which this year took place in Singapore. Now, we're recording this podcast before Singapore, but through the magic of editing, here's Andrew talking about how this year's event in Singapore went. I'm Andrew Denford, founder and chairman of F1 in Schools. The World Finals in Singapore are our 18th World Finals. It was held there for eight days over the period of the Grand Prix weekend. We had 68 teams. It was our first World Finals since lockdown with fully attended teams from all corners of the world. The racing takes place over three days. So it was a a phenomenal achievement to to have the the biggest number of teams ever go through the whole process in in the three-day period. The whole buzz of the event from when the teams arrived, they had no idea that they're entering the, the Beast Ballroom in Southeast Asia. And so when they walk in through the, the main door, the buzz, the excitement and, the, and the, the atmosphere is phenomenal. And then this, they're given a welcome address and, and then they've got two hours to put up their fitness plays, which, you know, some of them are so impressive, you can't believe they've actually hand carried them because we don't allow freight. And then we 
close that session off and then they retreat and come back the following day for the opening ceremony on the Sunday. And then the, the racing begins. The students, they don't know what's coming after the awards on the Wednesday evening, but Thursday we take them down to the circuit, took them down the pit lane for a photograph on the main grid. And then they spend an hour, hour and a half, walking back up the pit lane and going in the different garages, meeting team personnel. So for us, obviously, if you don't do it around the Grand Prix, that would never happen. Uh, and the excitement and, and really the determination of students to want to get to a, a Grand Prix to put themselves, if you like, on the main stage to meet the people from Formula One is, I think, what makes the competition so unique. To walk down the paddock with the students and meet people from within the Formula One teams to come over and say, hi, you know, I did the programme eight years ago. I'm, I'm now race engineer at, you know, whichever Formula One team. For us, that shows that what we do delivers what the teams need. But as we grow, there will be a need for more and more teams and more and more students to want to attend world finals or travel and take part in international events. So we're looking at an Asia Cup, an America's Cup, where we could host teams that haven't quite made it to the world finals, but still want to compete with other countries. So that's very much high on our agenda. It's great to have Aramco as title partner for the world finals. I mean, Aramco, one of the biggest companies in the world, massive focus on engineering and the need for engineers and um, looking at what we do as, as being a, a provider not just for their industry but other industries that they work with it's it's fabulous you know it's a great name you can see why they want to support us and we're really keen to continue the relationship working with aramco That was Andrew Denford discussing the Aramco F1 in Schools World Finals, an event that seems to go from strength to strength. And who knows, maybe the next Adrian Newey will come through the scheme. Well, that's about it for this episode, but we'll be back with you again soon for more stats, more performance insight and more F1 chat. In the meantime, be sure to like, follow or subscribe to the Race F1 Tech Show podcast feed to ensure you never miss an episode of that podcast or this one. Alex, more exciting racing and commentating coming up? Yes, I'll be heading out to Singapore and Japan for F1 TV, so I'm very excited to be uh, trackside at a Formula One event over the next two weeks. Lovely. And Sean, will you be on the road again soon? I will, yeah. I'll be on the same road that Alex is on, uh, but I'll be stopping periodically to check my Twitter feed just to check that Max Verstappen is killing the sport. <laughs> Terrific stuff. Well, thank you both as ever for joining me. Until next time, it's goodbye from Alex. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sean. Bye for now. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. The Athletic.